Good morning again, everybody. Turn with me, if you will, to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 12 through 17, but particularly looking at the second half of the letter to the seven churches. Um, I know some of you weren't able to be here last week. Um, I'll do just a quick review of what we covered last week as we move into the second part. There are four points altogether to this particular letter to the seven churches. And last week we looked at the introduction in verse 12, Jesus introducing himself as the one holding the two-edged sword. And then we spent time in verse 13 that dealt with the commendation that Christ had for the church at Pergamum and uh, the unique challenges that they faced um, in this city where the scripture testifies that they lived where Satan's throne was. Um, Let's ask the Lord to lead us again this morning as we come to his word. Lord, we thank you. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us this morning, that you would give us strength to, to hear, to listen, to obey, to apply your word to our lives. Um, Father, I pray that you would keep us from holding these letters to these seven churches at arm's length as if they don't apply to us. There's no application for us. We, we recognize, Father, that, that these are seven distinct letters to your people um, that were real churches at a real historic time with the same struggles that we um, wrestle with in our context in our day and age today. I ask, Lord, that you would help us um, through your Holy Spirit to apply your teaching and your truth to our lives this morning. We ask that you would be honored and glorified in our time together this morning. Lord, that you would cleanse us and wash us of any known sin, that we might be able to come to your table this morning with clean hearts and clean consciences. We ask that you would help us this morning when we commit ourselves into your hands. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. So, um, Briefly, by way of reminder, um, as we move into the second part of this letter, there were some very important questions that we asked last week um, as we addressed the first two points. And, and you see, as we read this text this morning, that there is a repeated mention and emphasis on the one who holds the two-edged sword. And we talked about the significance of that to the church at Pergamon, who was primarily situated geographically at the heart of the Roman Empire. So when Jesus is talking to this church and he mentions the sword, it's very specific and it brings up some very, um, very specific imagery to this church. This church is, is, is in a place where they have heavy influence from Greek historical tradition, religious tradition. We talked in depth last week about um, the fact that this was uh, the throne of Satan and that manifested in its, its worship of idolatry in terms of Zeus and, and many other um, false gods, among which... Um, Interestingly, was the goddess Klepios, the serpent god of healing. Um, and we talked about the fact that we, we see his symbol on every ambulance that passes by. Um, was learning from me as I dug into some of the, the Greek mythology and the idolatry that this church was faced with. Um, some of the questions that came to mind, though, is why... Did Jesus wield the sword to this church? We see it twice. We'll, we'll look at the second half of this this morning and understand the challenge that this church had with dealing with idolatry in their, in their congregation. But the sword of Jesus is a reminder that he is the sovereign conquering king, that his word is supreme. 
including over the sword of Rome, which we talked about last week. And Jesus will purge his church. We'll see as we continue in our study in the book of Revelation, the theme that will come out is Satan's uh, desire to um, impersonate and counterfeit everything that God is doing. And we'll see that with false worship and the false church. We'll look at that a little bit this morning. But we looked at verse 12, the introduction with the two-edged sword, the commendation, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And we talked about the fact that Antipas here has, has an honorable mention. Very little is known about this man. He was likely one of the elders at this church, but very little is known other than scripture tells us and the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ is he is my faithful witness. And if nothing else could be said about our lives, um, I think we would be happy as believers to be known as a faithful witness. But more importantly, Jesus refers to him as my faithful witness. We talked about the fact that um, the unknown faithful one here, Antipas, is intimately known by Christ. And this should be an encouragement to us as we serve in Wilkes County, North Carolina, and a very small body of believers here. The Lord knows his people. Nahum 1.7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. And Antipas lived in, there's a Latin term, Coram Deo, which is before the face of God. And this phrase literally refers to some to something that takes place in the presence of or before the face of God. To live Coram Deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God or under the authority of God or to his glory. And it doesn't have to be done with recognition from others. I was thinking about Antipas and his life and, and the testimony that scripture gives us of him and how Scripture screams about his life and its quietness about his life. Second Timothy 2.19 reminds us, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So this morning, I want to move us to um, point number three. And that is the admonishment beginning in verse 14. And we talked about this. There are two churches of the seven who have no admonishment. And how difficult it would be as you receive this letter, how rare mail would have been from the Apostle John to see the church's response when here is a letter addressed to them. And they open it up with with um, incredible excitement to hear from the man who was exiled and then to read. But I have a few things against you. How tough that would be. And I have been asking myself this question repeatedly, and I hope you as well. If Christ were to write a letter to you as the father of your home, to you as the husband what would that letter say? What would that letter say? Would it be admonishment free? Or would it be caveated with, I have a few things against you? There are two things that he lists here specifically. But as we read verses 14 and 15, he said, you have some there meaning in the church, who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So you also have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So two distinct things that Christ names regarding the church at Pergamum, who we read in the admonition, had stood firm and faithful in, in 
spite of the sword brought against them by Rome. Also in very dire straits, living literally in the, the presence of the throne of Satan, meaning his spiritual stronghold in that city. But Christ has a few things against them. First of all, he says, you have some who will the teaching or the doctrine, the instruction of Balaam. What does that mean? It's interesting that he, he brings up Balaam and Balak. Um, we studied um, this particular account back in as we were coming through our study in the Old Testament in Numbers. So I'm going to just remind you of the history here, but remember that this is parabolic in its picture. It's drawing a picture for us to illustrate truth. And he brings up Balaam and Balak, who Israel and believers in that day would have certainly known about. But they were both long since dead. So what is he saying here? Well, by, by way of reminder, if you go back to, to Numbers chapter 22, and I'm going to give you just the abbreviated version here, it brings up two questions. Why recall Balaam and Balak as both of them were long since dead? And then secondly, what is the doctrine of Balaam? So in Numbers 22, we find Israel on their journey um, and their conquest of Canaan. And in verse one, it says, the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, this horde will now lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Amal, to call him, saying, quote, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand. <clears throat> and so we go a little bit further down to verse 12. Balaam ready to make a buck, is willing. But God says to him, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. Well, it doesn't stop Balak from persistently trying to talk Balaam into cursing Israel because he sees no military opportunity here to overcome the people of Israel because they are like the sand of the sea. So we fast forward down to Numbers 22 in the famous passage in Scripture of Balaam's donkey. So God is angry with, with Balaam because Balaam goes with them. So Balaam is trying to do everything he can to stay within the confines of God's command yet get paid. Right? That's where we find Balaam. So Balaam says, I'm going to go listen to what, maybe they'll give me a consulting fee if I just show up, right? Consulting's big these days. I'll go make a little fee. <clears throat> so Balaam hops on his trusty old donkey, his trusty steed, and off he goes. Well, God is angry with him for going with them. Numbers 22 um, verse 22, but God's anger was kindled because he went and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now he was riding on his donkey and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. Remember that? What does God say he's going to take to the church at Pergamum? And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn 
her into the road. And then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. And Balaam's anger was kindled. And he struck the donkey with his staff. And the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. And she said to Balaam, and this is so humorous to me on one hand, because the donkey sounds incredibly reasonable. Listen to what the donkey says. What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, because you have made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey? (laughs) On which you have ridden all your life long to this day. Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, no. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam. And he saw the angel of the Lord standing in his way with his sword, his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. Now he's reconsidering his argument against the docking. And Balaam said to the angel, the Lord, I have sinned for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now, therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. Balaam is the ultimate pragmatist, isn't he? I'm sorry for striking my donkey. <laughs> what we don't see here is repentance for his disobedience to God. Yeah, you caught me with my hand in the cookie jar. I beat my donkey. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. Now, here is a direct command we find regarding Balaam. God tells him, finish your journey, but you are only supposed to say what I tell you to say. Now, that is a key statement here because we find further In Numbers chapter 31, Balak seeks the curse of Israel three times, and he's unsuccessful, and so he seeks another way. The scripture's silent on this until we get to Numbers 31, and here's commentary from Moses. Numbers 31, and we're going to go back in a second, but I want to give you this history because it's important. Numbers 31, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites. Afterward, you shall be gathered to your people. Moses, this is the last task I'm giving to you. Go avenge Midian. And we'll talk about why in just a second. Afterward, you shall be gathered to your people. You're going to die. So Moses spoke to the people saying, arm men from among you for the war that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. You shall send a thousand from each of the tribes of Israel to the war. So there were provided out of the thousands of Israel, a thousand from each tribe. Verse seven, they warred against Midian as the Lord commanded Moses and killed every male. They killed the kings of Midian. These are the men that paid for the curse. With the rest of their slain, Evi, Rechem, Zer, Hur, Reba, the five kings of Midian. They also killed Balaam the son of Beor, with the sword. And Moses says in verse 15, Have you let all the women live? Behold, these on on Balaam's advice, catch that, cause the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came upon the congregation of the Lord. What did Balaam do? When God would not allow him to curse Israel, Balaam gave counsel and advice to Balak. And what was that counsel and advice? Because this is 
the doctrine or the teaching that Jesus is referring to the church in Pergamum. What did he tell Balak to do? It's the old adage. If you can't beat them, what? Join Join them. So what did Balak do? Well, go back just a little bit in, in scripture. The numbers 25, one through nine. And I'm just going to read a couple of the highlights here for sake of time. While, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people. Catch that. These invited the people to, to the sacrifices of their God, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to the Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. And if you look down in verse 9, the net result of their yoking together with the gods of Midian is those who died before the plague or by the plague were 24,000 Israelites. So the purpose of reminding the church at Pergamum about the counsel or the doctrine of Balaam was, where are they living? They're at Satan's throne, the scripture says. Satan, and and we've talked about this, Satan deals with us in a couple of, of different ways. He likes to seduce, and if he can't seduce, he likes to destroy. And here we have the seduction of Israel by these Midianitish women. And what does that have to do with the church at Pergamos? The doctrine that Balak took from Balaam was alive and well in in their day. And so the, the historical significance is important. Like Balaam, Satan's methodology is that of compromise. He knows he cannot curse God's church. Satan would love to say the word in all of his anger and all of his power, and he is a powerful enemy, and destroy the church of God without any hesitation. But because he can't do that, what does he do? Well, the scripture says he is our adversary. He is our accuser. And Satan's desire, his design, if you will, is to get us to compromise. Balaam's doctrine was the doctrine of pluralism. And what does that mean? Well, it means this, quote, we can coexist together as long as Jesus is not supreme, but merely one of many gods. Touched on this last week. This is the doctrine of Balaam. You can be a Christian. We see this in the the philosophy of secularism. Be a Christian. Just don't bring it into your workplace. Don't bring it outside of your church on Sunday. Your life as a Christian, according to a pluralist secularist, is a divided, segregated life where you you serve God in your specific um, way and time, but don't but don't bring it out here because out here he's just one of many. And the allure to compromise is great. And I can, you know, we could sit and make a list and, and probably come up with a couple of dozen ways right now in our current context that Satan is trying to seduce the church into compromise. But pluralism defined is a condition or system in which two or more states Groups, principles, or sources of authority coexist. We asked the question last last week, and it's just as relevant. Who is supreme? This is what the church at Pergamum was faced with. They had all these idols around them. And nobody cared that they worship Christ so long as Caesar was supreme. As long as you supported Caesar, you were fine to be a Christian. As long as you didn't talk too badly about Zeus and Eclepios and all these other gods that were being worshipped in the context of the church of Pergamum, you're fine. But if you said Jesus is Lord, 
we had a problem. Paul reminded the church in Corinth who was dealing with the same issue in 2 Corinthians 16, do not be unequally yoked. What did the scripture say regarding, what did Moses say regarding the people of Israel with Midian? They were yoked with them. Now, the idea of being yoked is to put yourself in locked connection with them. We think of yokes on oxen. So you, you come into partnership with something so that you can achieve a common goal, right? It's like, I think of a good example of this is, let's yoke with the Catholic Church because they're pro-life and so are we, right? But there's that constant temptation, isn't there, to yoke, to bring ourselves into lockstep, Balaam told Balak, Balak, you can't outright destroy Israel. Bless you. You can't outright destroy Israel as they are blessed, but send in your women and seduce them and get them to join you. Pretty slick, isn't it? That's how Satan operates. Compromise defined is an agreement or a settlement of dispute that is reached by each side by making what? Concessions. Is that not what the church is being told to do by our culture today? Yeah, coexist. Just make little concessions here. Seven years ago, it was the concession of defining marriage. Now look at where we are today. Think of how far we've come in seven years. Compromise is an agreement or a settlement of a dispute that is reached by each side making concessions. Paul said, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Compromise is anything It brings us into an agreement with what God defines as disagreeable. Compromise is anything that brings us into agreement with what God finds disagreeable. And the question that you and I should ask is this, and we talked about John 17 last week where Jesus prays, Lord, they're in the world, but they are not of it. I pray that you keep them while they are in it. We, we, we need incredible discernment and wisdom to know where that line is. We're in it, but not of it. But how tempting it is to morph into a little bit of of it, right? We're in it. Brother, you give your definition of compromise. Yes, compromise is anything that brings us into agreement with what God finds disagreeable. Thank you. Yes, sir. And the, and the thought I have as I think about that statement is asking the Holy Spirit to enlighten us on where you or I may be compromised. The picture here in idol worship, we saw it in, with Israel eating meat offered to idols. The idea of eating meat offered to idols is to sit down and fellowship with them. We know this so well because Paul, as he's warning the Corinthian church, is also teaching them about the Lord's table. How can you sit down and fellowship with idols when you're called to sit down and fellowship with your Lord? You can't fellowship with both. Sitting down at the table is yoking together with fellowship. But even worse, seeped in all of this idolatry is what comes with that. Well, the sexual immorality. What is sexual immorality but union or fellowship? Both figuratively and literally, it is the yoking together with that which dishonors God. Satan and by extension, idolaters are taking what God designed for good, the physical union of marriage or that should be preserved for marriage and perverting it into rebellion. It is little wonder, by the way, that we are seeing the fruits of the sexual revolution being lived out in front of us right now. I was not a child of the 60s. I was a child of the 70s. 
That was already well underway. But we're, we're seeing the fruits of that lawlessness and rebellion being lived out in front of us now. And it's important to note that one of the most powerful ways that the church separates from the world is our, our sexual ethic and our upholding God's design for marriage. And not just our sexual ethic, but our ethic on the sexes, which are being completely redefined now. Everything that we are seeing lived out in front of us is rebellion to God. If we could define it, if we could, we, you could take every ism out there and melt it down. It all comes down to one thing, rebellion to God. That's what idolatry is. So the temptation for the church then, it is, it is now, is to compromise. And in so doing, we're drawn into rebellion to God. We saw it with Israel constantly. God told them to go into the land and eradicate the enemy. God did not tell them, make, make amends, compromise with them. You let them have this little piece of land. No, he tells them to go in and eliminate the enemy. They had license to do it. What did Israel do? We find, and we looked at this last week in our study in 2 Samuel chapter 8, David finishes to some degree what God had already commanded Israel to do. But when we make compacts or covenants, we come together in yokes with idolatry, it will never end well for the church. And we start seeing this theme emerge as we look at the seven letters in the next letter, we'll see verses 20 through 24. God says, but I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. There again is an historical reference back to old Testament times. Jezebel is long since dead. We know what happened to her <clears throat> who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing active tense. My servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sick bed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. Now this is figurative language. It's not to say that sexual immorality in a very real sense is not a challenge for the church of Jesus Christ. But what he's really, what he's really pointing to is the spiritual adultery here pictured. Um, we find that Jezebel is long since dead, but she did. It's the same thing. It's an enticing of God's people away from the truth of the word of God to cause them to compromise. Revelation 17, and we're a ways away from getting to that shows where, where this study is taking us. And we have a picture of the false church in Revelation 17. There are two women portrayed in the latter part of the book of Revelation. In Revelation 17, we see the false church versus or contrasted against the real church. And that's what's going on here, by the way. Jesus is separating the fake from the real, the false from the true. Because he's constantly saying to them, here's the warning. If you have ears to hear, hear. Well, guess what? Not everybody had ears to hear. So what happened to the warning to repent? Went ignored. And God brings purging and justice to those churches. Revelation 17, we find a picture of the great prostitute. And she's known, and think about this in terms of the false church. She is known by her self-beautification. Let me ask you a question, and this is where Satan's counterfeit comes in. How is the church of Jesus Christ beautiful? How is the church of Jesus Christ beautiful? The garments of Christ. The garments of Christ. We talked this morning about the fact that the church of Jesus Christ are worms, dead dogs, that God has taken by his amazing grace is transformed into something beautiful. But there's nothing innately beautiful about a worm or a dead dog. 
But here we find in Revelation 17, verse 4, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hands a golden cup full of the abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. We find in chapter 19, seeing the judgment of the great prostitute. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice and a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on a throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you, his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of the mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord, our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Listen to this. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Here you have a contrasting picture of two women. One, the bride of Christ is the true genuine church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The other is an awfully appealing, attractive, counterfeit version. And what makes her so appealing and so attractive is she dresses herself. She dresses herself to seduce away those who are susceptible. How does religion dress itself? I can get to God on my own terms. That is the essence of religion. I can get to God on my terms. I can make myself attractive. I can make myself appealing. I am not a dead dog. I am not a worm. I am something special. Mark talked about the fact that that song, they've edited out the words. Why? Because it does not appeal to my flesh to call myself such a worm as I. It doesn't appeal to my flesh. I like to think a little highly of myself, a little higher of myself than just a lowly worm. But Man, what a great example of the seduction that we look at today. Told you when when we started this study back in, it's already been last August. You realize that? Satan has two main weapons in his arsenal. One is seduction and one is destruction. And here's the warning of Paul. We talked about uh, the letter to the church of Ephesus, but listen to his warning here. Ephesians 5, verse 1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Now, this was a problem for the church at Ephesus, wasn't it? They, the scripture said, had left their first love. Now, they were faithful to God's word. They could see, they could spot a false prophet, a false teacher coming a mile away, but they had a love problem. Paul says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Verse four, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which is out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Modern so-called Christianity today denies the very existence of hell. They deny the existence of God's wrath. Modern theology is moving very quickly to universalism in which God will overlook the sins of all mankind, but there's nothing for God to get angry about. Paul warns, let no one deceive you with empty words. 
For because of these, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, listen to what he says. Do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That is the challenge, isn't it? Discerning what is pleasing to the Lord in a culture that wants us to compromise. Being in the world, but not of it. Paul says, try and discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And how would we do that, by the way, brothers and sisters? How do we do that? Amen. If we are not close to God's word, we're going to be led astray. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Here is where Christ brings accusation to the church of Pergamos. When I say accusation, it's not false accusation. He says, you have some who hold, meaning they had open sin that they had either refused or delayed to bring discipline to bear in the church. Christ identifies them. Now, if they were um, holding the doctrine of Balaam, it would have been known in the church. So the church of Pergamum had already compromised by not bringing the sword of God's word to bear in church discipline. There was an accusation, rightfully so, brought against the elders. And Paul warns the church in Corinth the same way when there was a man who took his father's wife. And the church, how progressive they were, did not mourn over it. He said, you are arrogant. First Corinthians chapter five, verse one. There's reported among you sin of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not to rather mourn that him who has done this be removed from among you. What are they talking about there? Church discipline. Paul is telling the church in Corinth, men, elders, you must step up, stop looking past this, stop looking over this, and deal with it. He says, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And then he warns them down in verse 6. He said, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Jesus is warning the church in Pergamum because he said there are some among you who hold the doctrines of Balaam. Now, he did not say the entire church has been corrupted by this, but what happens? What happens if a church allows open sin to continue? Now, what's that? It grows. It spreads. It's like a cancer. And that's exactly what Paul is warning them here. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, and he ends his admonition by saying this, purge the evil person from among you. He tells him to turn turn him over to Satan. Say, Paul, that's so harsh. What is he saying? Let the, the consequences of his sin have its natural outworking that the man may repent and his soul might be saved, but you can't let him continue in your church in front of everyone to claim the name of Christ and do what he's doing. So the church is compromising there. The second thing that he warns them about is the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And there's not much said here about what the doctrine holds, but it's directly linked and correlated with the teachings of Balaam. So whatever, excuse me, whatever it was, it was bad for the church. It was a false teaching of some sort. And it's interesting to me that Balaam's name means he destroys the people. Know that? 
You know what Nicholas's name means? He conquers the people. Neither one of these doctrines were good for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this reminder of him who wields the sword reminds us that the church, unlike the church in Ephesus, was lacking discernment. They were lacking discernment, but Christ is not. And here is the amazing promise that Christ has for the church of Pergamum. You may be asleep at the wheel, elders, but I'm not. And if you will not deal with this, I will come, I will bring the sword in my mouth, and I will deal with it myself. We find that happen many, many times in Scripture, don't we? Christ is jealous for his church, and he will guard it. And he has tasked us as leaders and elders to do the same. The attempt to lead the people of God astray is still prominent, just as it was in the time of Israel. Point number four, we find a warning and a promised blessing. Verse 16 says, therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth, them being those who refuse to repent. He who has an ear to hear, there it is again. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden man, and I will give him a white stone to, with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. They were commanded to repent. So I just read Paul's warning to the Corinthian church. They were commanded to purge out the old leaven. And this is our battle. Second Corinthians 10, 3 through 6 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war against the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds or fortresses. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. The idea of lofty opinions is what? When we think of high places, what do we think of? Idols. How do we as Christians break down idols? Well, he says, take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. The way that we do spiritual battle, particularly with idolatry, is bringing every thought. The world, listen, guys, the world wants us to think like them. They want to tell us how to think. How do we battle that? That is in everything that we encounter with culture, whether entertainment, whether music, whether education, anything that we encounter in this world is preaching at us. Think this way. Be not conformed to this world. Yes. Every thought has to be brought into captivity. And that means we're to bring it in con- into conformance with the word of God. Everything you hear, ask yourself the question, does this agree with God's word? If it agrees with God, God's word, it falls under whatever is beautiful, lovely. Think on those things. And what, what if it doesn't? We need to cast it aside. That is no place in my way of thinking. How easily our minds are shaped by this world. But that is the essence of our spiritual battle, isn't it? Bringing everything that we hear, see, or think into captivity, comparing it against God's word, sorting it out. Does this please God or does this cause me to compromise? Here is the promised blessing to those that have ear to hear. They're commanded to repent. And if they refuse to exercise discipline, Christ will come and wage war. Here's the promised blessing. He will give them the hidden manna. Now that is an interesting statement. What is the hidden manna? Or it should really be asked this way. Who is the hidden manna? This is the promise to the church who is now in the wilderness that she will be nourished while she is in exile. And the church that is in Pergamum is in the wilderness. Say, well, what in the world do you mean by that? I'll show you in just a second. Real quick, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, we find a, a, a statement of history here regarding manna. 
And, and Moses says this in verse three, and he humbled you, meaning Israel, and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which he did not know, nor did your fathers know, listen to this, that he might make you know that the man, that man does not live by what? Bread, Bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Fast forward to Matthew chapter 4. We find Jesus. Where? Where was he? The Spirit led him where? To the wilderness. Jesus led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written. And what did he say? Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And fine scripture says that Satan left him. Satan and his accusations, if answered with God's word, he has nothing to say. John chapter 6, Jesus talking to the Pharisees, and they said to him, then what sign do you do? This is John 6, 30. What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Just give us a sign, Jesus, and we will admit that you are the Messiah. We will believe and obey. Our fathers, here is their bona fides, we're sons of Abraham. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Listen to this. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The bread was not a what? The bread was a who? For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said, to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He said in verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If, any, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And Jesus tells the church in Pergamos, to him that has an ear to hear, I will give to eat, I will give to him some of the hidden manna. What is he promising them? Your victory, your reward will result in me giving myself to you. You will become partakers. In Revelation 12, just to finish filling out this picture for us, I want you to see this, because we'll probably forget about this by the time we get to Revelation chapter 12. But in Revelation 12, 1 through 6, John writing here says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed in the sun. Now I was talking to you about the the fake church and the real church. So here's a picture of the real church. And I want you to see her condition. This is not Mary, by the way, as some would claim. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. There, there are some in, in the Catholic tradition that would paint Mary with these, with, with a picture like this in the description. This is not Mary. Now, Mary's not excluded from the church as a saint, a child of God. But I want you to see that this is the church. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. (coughs) Excuse me. His tail swept down a third of the stars from heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Any idea who the dragon is? Who's the dragon here? Yes, Satan. What did Satan try and do when, when Jesus was born? 
how many male babies were destroyed because Herod, under the direction of the evil one, was trying to eliminate the possibility of the Messiah being born or living. She gave birth to a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Who is that? Who is to rule the nation with a rod of iron? It's a picture of Christ. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now, in between the child's birth and being caught up to God and his throne, we, there's a lot there that John doesn't specifically mention, meaning the life of Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. But in that, Satan thinks or thought when he went to Judas and, and possessed him to go betray Christ, why did he do that? Because in Satan's mind, he defeated Christ when he sent him to the cross, didn't he? But absent in this description is anything saying that Christ was defeated by the dragon, because he wasn't. In fact, he was kept the entire time and caught up to God into his throne. And this is, this is what happens to the woman. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she was. She has a place prepared by God. Listen to this. In which she is nourished for 1260 days. If you look down in verse 13, when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that he, she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to a place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. Jesus is promising the church in the wilderness that he will provide for her. He will nourish her. And how does he nourish the church with himself? Jesus promises to give those that have an ear to hear of the hidden man. It's a promise of eternal life. It's the granting to us of himself. He is the hidden man which sustains us in the wilderness. <clears throat> and then lastly, it says, I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. That's interesting. What could that be? <clears throat> white is the descriptor here of the stone. And it's used 13 times in the book of Revelation to portray righteousness or holiness. It's a picture. And it's, a mo it's most likely hearkening back to, again, the Old Testament imagery. When, when we find John addressing the seven churches and he turns around and sees Christ, where does he see Jesus standing? He's standing in the midst of the, the, the lampstand, the golden candlesticks, which is where? If we think historically, um, in the context of Israel and what they would have known, where would that have taken them? The Holy of Holies. Right outside the Holy of Holies, right? Inside would have been the Ark. So in context to that, what I think this is, is referencing, and I believe we have scriptural preference for it, is the Thummim, Thummim and the Urim. So if we go back to Exodus chapter 28, Verses 6 through 12, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but verse 9 says, You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of their names on one stone, and the names of the remaining six on the other stone. Now, where did those two stones go? On the shoulders of the high priest. Why? Verse 12, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on two, on his two shoulders for remembrance. So here is a picture. Aaron is, is a type of who? He's a, he's a picture of Christ in his limited sinful self. Here's the picture of the high priest bearing on the shoulders the stones with the names engraved. So we're comparing scripture to scripture here. I'm not trying to make anything up. So it's interesting to me that if you look back in Exodus 28, he uses two onyx stones. If anybody were to look up on the Google machine real quick what an onyx stone looks like, any, any idea? Black. Well, smoky quartz. Like black. 
Judges, will you accept smoky courts? Yes. Um, smoky courts are black. Okay. What does Jesus say to the victor here? Yes. Hmm. The onyx stones are black, and it's a, it's a picture of the high priest interceding for the sins of the 12 tribes when he goes into the presence once a year before the throne of God, before the Ark of the Covenant. What is Jesus telling the victor in the church of Pergamos? You're going to get a new stone, a white stone, which is a picture of what? Well, that's a, that's a good analogy. You're forgiven. You are cleansed. That the work is complete. We see historically the changing of names in Scripture. What does that tell us? We know Abram was changed to who? Abraham. Abraham. But what was the context of his name change? Remember, God puts him under and he gives him a dream. And, and that was... That was his exposure to God's covenant, wasn't it? When he dreams a dream where God divides the animals and we see the passing through. But, but think of, I want you to think about this. The changing of the names marks ownership. I read a testimony of a Christian who was kept in North Korean captivity. Awful, awful. One of the first things that they do was they strip away your name. She was known as prisoner number 42, and they referred to her as 42. The first thing they did to separate her from her identity was strip away her name, Mm -hmm. then the hair, Mm -hmm. and then all the rest. When Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's their their new names, by the way. Why did Babylon change her name? Different gods. Different gods. Different identity. You belong to King Nebuchadnezzar now. You have a new name. What is Jesus telling the church in Pergamum here? You have a name that only you know that I'm going to give you in a white stone, not a not a black stone. What is he telling them? They're recipients of his covenant grace. Their name has changed. If any man be in Christ, what? His new creation. This is a picture of God's grace and giving his church eternal life. He gives us a new name, a new identity. We are not that that dog anymore. We are now sons of God with an eternal inheritance waiting on us. This is just another beautiful symbolic picture of what Christ does for his church. He's given us new names. And he's declared us innocent. And by the way, he engraves our name on the stone. What does that mean? It's a picture of permanence here. Here we have a picture, a few verses up of Antipas, who was God's faithful martyr that nobody knows anything about. But God says he's my faithful martyr. I know his name. I know what he's gone through. And I've kept him. And and the encouragement for you and I is if we are the faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, he knows our name. And he has given us a new name. He's in the sharpened marker. Yes. Permanent. Yeah. (laughs) This was an amazing reminder to the faithful and the suffering in the church of Pergamum that they are protected eternally by Christ and that they will not be forgotten. As we close this morning, my prayer for this church family, as we meet and serve in relative anonymity in Wilkes County, North Carolina, is that we would not compromise the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would remain faithful to him no matter what the cost, and that we would lift Coram Deo as before his face, knowing that our labor for him, though not noticed by those around us, is before his face and he sees it. Let's ask God to keep us faithful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder that we have an enemy that desires to see us seduced and destroyed. 
to compromise your word, to compromise your gospel. Father, that wants to defame the name of Christ and steal away your glory. He is a counter counterfeiter and a thief. Lord, we ask that we would be like Antipas. We would be your faithful witnesses. Father, that you would um, grant us backbones that hold up to the seduction. And when there's not seduction, Father, even to the force that wants and desires to cause us to bow our knees to bail. Lord, we live in a wicked and perverse generation, no different from when the saints lived then. We ask that you would grant us faithfulness and that we would do um, and serve you as we ought to today. Thank you for this time. We ask these things in your name. Amen.